All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are digging deeper into the book of Revelation. We have finally made it to Revelation chapter 13 and the two beasts that come alongside the dragon in this unholy trinity of Revelation, and especially what the dispensationalists are waiting for to show up after the rapture. But we're going to see exactly what this first beast means as we look at Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So far our text. First of all, this word that is used for the beast, it usually refers to a wild animal, especially one that is considered dangerous or hostile or even evil. Intertestamental writings influenced by the beast of Daniel 7, Job 40 and 41, and other biblical texts use animals to represent evil forces which oppress mankind. First Enoch 60 verses 7 and 8 describes two beasts, one in the sea named Leviathan and the other associated with the desert named Behemoth, which threatened the human race. Now we get to looking at the beast, you know, rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. This is where we have a disagreement in some of the manuscripts. The majority of the manuscripts attest the singular form, which suggests that the same blasphemous name is on each of the heads. The plural implies that each head has a different blasphemous name, hinting that the beast employs a variety of disguises and methods of deceit. The plural is probably the correct reading, although it is in many places in the singular. Dr. Brighton says, just as Satan is the beast from the abyss that is hell, chapter 11, verse 7, similarly the beast here in 13.1, which is under Satan's control, is from the sea, which is a place of chaos and evil on earth. The sea as the origin of this beast points to a sinister origin. In the Old Testament, the sea, especially in its boiling rage, is frequently portrayed as a place of fearful chaos and destruction caused by mankind's sin and rebellion against God. As such, it is the dwelling place of the sea monsters Leviathan and Rahab, which terrorize the human race. And this beast has ten head, horns and seven heads, exactly like the dragon. This identifies the beast and what it represents as an instrument and agent of the dragon. The beast, like the dragon, also has diadems. However, the diadems 
are not upon the monster's heads, as is the case of the dragon, but on its horns. The dragon has diadems on his head because the dragon is the supreme mastermind of evil who will motivate and inspire the beast. This first beast in Revelation 13 parallels the fourth beast in Daniel 7. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Dr. McGee, getting to our dispensationalist friends. The first beast is a person who heads up the old Roman Empire. Rome simply fell apart and this is the only one who will ever be able to put it back together again. Now, this is the problem with the dispensationalist idea, is that in the end times, the ancient Roman Empire is going to come back again. They had this idea with Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire, and this is getting into kind of the, that continual historical method where you have the different things in human history that talk about different things in the scriptures. But here, as they look to this first beast, it is the political beast that is the one that brings about, as he says, the old Roman Empire that simply just fell apart and just kind of disintegrated. And he is the only one, basically, to put the ancient Humpty Dumpty back together again which is why they focus on getting there so we know who the Antichrist is, because he's going to be revealed right after the church is taken out. But the question is, logically here, if the church is taken away in Revelation chapter 4, and the beast doesn't show up, and the Antichrist doesn't show up until chapter 13, it's not a right next to A and B segment if it, we're talking about a literal timeline here. But again, as we have seen, as we will continue to see, John goes over and over again the same time between Christ's ascension and his return. And this is the third time we are going through this cycle. Now we have the description of the beast in verse 2. Dr. Brighton says the interpretation of the first beast includes Rome, but also must be broadened. The beast represents and symbolizes every human authority and everything of the human nature that the dragon can corrupt and control and use in his warfare against the woman, the church, and her seed, individual Christians. This can be political, governmental, social, economic, philosophical, and educational systems, as well as individuals. So it is not just one thing. It is the totality of everything that is at the devil's disposal in the secular world. As we continue the description in verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The perfect passive participle of Svatso also described the lamb who had been slain back in Revelation 5, and the slain martyrs whose souls were under the heavenly altar in chapter 6. Therefore, this verse suggests a resurrection by demonic power in imitation of the Lamb. So this is to be one of those imitations of Jesus, this falsehood that is going on with the first beast. 
The Reformation Heritage Bible Commentary says, Other commentators take a different tack, suggesting that the beast's mortal wound is an indicator of how oppressive empires, though defeated, still come back to life to war against God's people. Here they make pointed reference in keeping with the beast of Daniel. The Babylonians were defeated, only to be replaced by the Persians. They were defeated by Alexander the Great, only to re be replaced by Hellenistic rulers who oppressed the Jewish people. These were defeated in the Maccabean Revolt, but eventually the Romans came to power. Strike one oppressive empire with a mortal wound, and it heals and returns with another oppressive empire. So many commentators will say that this is any type of world empire any type of world power that seeks to oppress the people of God. It doesn't have to be Rome, because Rome was just another one in a series of empires that have risen and fallen, and another has taken its place. Victorinus of Petrovium says, One of its heads was mortally wounded, but its mortal wound was healed. He is referring here to Nero, for it is a well-known fact that when the army sent by the Senate was following him, he cut his own throat. And he is the one whom, when he has been brought to life again, God will send as a king worthy of those who are worthy of him, the Jews and those who persecute Christ. And he will send him as a Christ, such as the persecutors and the Jews deserve. Now this goes back to an ancient Roman legend that Nero really didn't die. That he just hit himself and he was going to come back. One of the great legends had that he was coming back with the Parthians, his sworn enemies, to come back and retake the Roman Empire. So this is this idea, this is where Victor Victorinus gets the idea of Nero brought back to life. Dr. McGee says, this verse together with chapter 17, verse 8, has led many to view that Satan actually raises the beast from the dead. Because of these two scriptures, there are many who have taken the position that the beast is actually raised from the dead by Satan. This cannot be because Satan does not have power to raise the dead. That power has not been given to him at all. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can raise the dead. There are others who take the view that the beast here refers to the Roman Empire and that imperial form of government, which under which Rome fell, will be restored in a startling manner. I believe this will happen, but I do not think it is a resurrection, for Rome never died. Rome fell apart. The Roman Empire has not truly died. It lives on in the nations of Europe today. Again, this idea from the dispensationalist, that this is going to be Rome all over again. And could this be, well, it is going to be very similar to Rome in many aspects. But again, you had the idea of the British Empire that was almost global by the time of World War II. And it's especially its conquest of the Ottoman Empire and a lot of what was there. Rome having never died, no, no, Rome is dead. The ancient Roman Empire is dead. So the people worship the dragon and the beast. And this is well suited because worship of Roman emperors had been encouraged ever since the reign of Augustus. But it's not until the latter part of the first century AD that such worship becomes widespread, that there really becomes an emperor cult. So now we have this beast uttering blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and heaven, making war on the saints, conquering them. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain, fall down and worship him. This is why we must have the scriptures and the other 65 books to help us out. 
Because what does it mean to be written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain? Well, we go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of these things, the choosing, choosing us to be in him before the foundation of the world. He has called us, foreknown us, and predestined us before the foundation of the world. Not that we have those who are saved because God chose them to be saved, but because God chose the method of salvation. God chose Christ to be the Savior of the world so that we have one way of coming to the Father. We have one way of knowing our salvation. So as we come to the end of our text, what do people think of the first beast? Especially as we go back through the different interpretations. Well, the Praetorists, those who believe that everything in Revelation has happened in the past before John's time, and all we're waiting for is the coming of Jesus again, they think that John writes primarily about the Roman Empire of his day, that the blasphemies of the beast were evident in how Domitian styled himself as Lord and God. The historicists think the vision describes civil entities and human governments at later periods of history. So again, it's going to be one of these world empires that shows up. Dispensationalists think that all these matters apply to the seven-year period of tribulation. After the church has been raptured from the earth, a revived Roman Empire will arise during those days, eventually becoming a worldwide government led by the Antichrist. So again, this idea that Rome never died, as Dr. McGee says. And then the idealist, that all of this is abstract in the first place. See here an image of how Satan will use any human institution to persecute Christians and drive them from their faith. Now, what is it that we believe? Well, it's a combination of things. Well, it is a combination of the idealist and the historicist. That, yes, it is a picture of how Satan will use anything to persecute Christians and try to drive them away from the faith. And this most often comes in the government and civil entities that seek to destroy the church, that seek to control the church from the outside, that seek to keep the word of God suppressed. That is what this first beast is. This is the secular version of Satan's work. Next week, we'll get into the second beast, which is the religious beast, which is how Satan works even in the church to persecute Christians, to bring about his will, to try to destroy the church from the inside. But we'll talk more about that next week. Until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, thanking you for being here, digging deeper with me into the scriptures. And I pray that as we have looked at this first beast in Revelation 13, the ideas here strengthen you to wrestle with the theologies around you that Satan is bringing about to try to bring you away from your faith. Amen.